Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview Nancy Stern, an associate professor of bilingual education, TESOL, and linguistics at CUNY. She currently serves on the Academic Council of American Friends of Combatant for Peace. Uh, Nancy, thank you very much for joining me and kind of sharing your story with us today. Uh, my listeners, I'm sure, will learn a lot from your background, your experience, and your activism. I was wondering if we could start by you telling us more about your background, your ties to Israel-Palestine, maybe how your background shaped to the work that you do. Sure. First, thank you so much for having me. I grew up in the United States, like most people, especially most Jewish people, um, believing that Israel was a wonderful, very important place for Jewish people, that it was a shining example of democracy, absolutely essential to ensuring safety for Jews. Uh, my father was born in Germany in the 1930s, and as anti-Semitism rose all around him, uh, his parents were sure that it would subside. And even when they all had to wear yellow Stars of David on their clothing, my father was beaten up every day at school. Uh, his parents were sure that everything was going to be all right. And he, my father actually never forgave his parents for taking so long to leave. Um, they were finally able, they finally decided to leave and they were able to come to the United States but my father's grandparents were not, and, and they were all killed in concentration camps. And so I grew up knowing, believing that um, never again would this happen to Jews because Israel existed, because there was a safe place for Jews to go in the world. And certainly with centuries and centuries of persecution against Jewish people, at the time it, it made sense to me. And I, and I grew up really thinking that Israel was just just wonderful and very happy about it. I did have some doubts, even when I was very young. I remember learning in school here that we have separation of church and state and that that's very important. And that's what keeps us all safe here. That's what makes this country great. It's a multi-ethnic democracy here. And I, I was the only Jewish kid in my class. And, and I worried what, what would happen if Israel is a Jewish state, what happens if this country becomes a Christian state? And I, I worried, am, am I going to have to leave? Am I going to have to go to Israel? I didn't want to go to Israel. I wanted to stay here. So I, I, had, I was a little concerned about that. But overall, I really, I, I believed all the mythology that I learned, that we, that we all learn, or most of us learn in this country. And I just didn't pay a lot of attention. And then Around 10 years ago, I heard Miko Pellet, uh, an author, interviewed on the radio about his book, it was new at the time, called The General's Son. Uh, Miko is the son of a general in the Six-Day War and the grandson of a signer of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. And the book is um, a political memoir of his transformation, his political transformation. And as I read the book and I cried, I cried while I was reading it. I cried at night, I told my son, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know these things. I, the myths that I learned were wrong. It was really very painful for me. And then in an amazing coincidence, I met Miko's sister, 
Nurit Pellet El Hanan, Nurit's daughter, um, Smadar, was killed in a terrorist attack in Jerusalem when she was 14. Uh, I met Nurit through an academic conference, and I had, I had just read her brother's book, and I had just learned about her daughter's death, and I learned a lot from her. Uh, she refused to let Israel politicize her daughter's death. She blamed then and continues to blame the occupation for her daughter's death. And she, along with her amazing husband, Rami, who I also met, continued to struggle for peace and uh, not to seek revenge, not to seek, not to harm other people, but to find peace for everyone. And actually it was Nurit who encouraged me to take a trip with an amazing tour company, Mejdi Tours, uh, which I did in 2018 under the auspices of the organization Combatants for Peace. And it was called a dual narrative tour. We had an Israeli tour guide and we had a Palestinian tour guide. We went to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial. We saw bomb shelter in Serot where rockets from Hamas are fired into Israel. We saw a bomb shelter that was designed to look like, not to look like, it was a playground for children. But we also saw the inequities of a society that excludes half its people. The separation wall, which I think I had always envisioned the way most people do as kind of like a, a wall separating you know, Massachusetts from Connecticut, or New York from New Jersey, you know, and instead to see this wall that is kind of everywhere, right up against people's houses, separating people from their schools, separating people from their, from hospitals, separating people from their own land, making what could be a very short trip into quite an ordeal seeing soldiers and seeing um, militarized checkpoints. And again, not checkpoints between, you know, we think of them as checkpoints from one country to another, but no, it's, it's checkpoints to, to do things like go shopping. Palestinians have to go through checkpoints. And sometimes I tell people, think of it as militarized airport security where they think that you have done something wrong. And imagine having to go through that to go visit people in your own family. Um, we saw roads that were only for Jews, places where there wasn't enough water for Palestinians, where Israeli settlements had beautiful grass and swimming pools. And um, it, was really, it was really transformational for me. And um, if anyone has an opportunity to take a trip like that, I just can't recommend it highly enough. Combatants for Peace is running another tour this November. Um, there are other tours also. Mejdi even runs single day tours. So that's that's my story. That's how I got to where I am. Thank you. That's a fascinating story, you know, going back to the Holocaust to today. And from the interviews I've done so far, a lot of activists and people who come to their, you know, political consciousness at some point, they, they understand that in order to achieve justice, peace, you can't have it on the expense of others. So if one group is oppressed, that you can't guarantee your freedom based on oppressing another group. And I think that's one of the core understandings of what peace activism is, and at least for me. Um, so that brings me to the next question. 
How do you yourself define peace activism? What do you view a peaceful resolution to the violence on the ground through the systematic violence um, aimed at, you know, kind of oppressing one ethnic and religious group against the other? Well, how, how I define peace activism is, is working toward justice and fairness and the absence of, of violence of, of all kinds. And as far as a resolution, I, I like what um, Combatants for Peace says that if people see the humanity in the other and have a will to create peace, there will be peace, whether it's one state or two states or five states. Once people recognize that everyone should be treated fairly and everyone should have freedom and dignity. Personally, I like the idea of a one state where everyone has rights. I think that is the best way to guarantee safety for everyone. Um, I particularly like the program put forward by the One Democratic State Campaign which is a Palestinian-led initiative that calls for the establishment of a single democratic state. And what, what I like about that proposal is that it's a specific political proposal. Um, it's a 10-point manifesto that they offer, but that it's designed not only to ensure individual rights, but also group rights so that everyone would be protected. And I know a lot of people say, well, that can't be, that's not realistic, but if you think about the amount of money and the political effort that comes, especially from the United States, if that's the will of the people to do that, then it, it can happen. I like the project that you mentioned. How, where can our listeners go and get more details on the project? They have a website. It's called uh, onestatecampaign.org. Yeah, so I, I really encourage our listeners to go check it out and see what you think of that. Do some research. Um, maybe it will shed a new light on the way you perceive the conflict and the resolution to it. Because we're always stuck in like two state and we know that two state solution is not really viable, right? At least yeah. not current conditions that we see today. Yeah, the idea of a country that privileges one group for their religion or their ethnicity for me personally, I don't, I don't think that's positive direction. And I don't think it's, it's in anyone's best interest, including the people who are privileged. Mm -hmm. So now we talked about your background a little bit, your family history, how you started kind of viewing Israel as a state. And, you know, I always make sure to distinguish between state and people, right? Because, uh, you know, the narrative now in the U.S. especially that is anti-Zionism, does anti-Zionism mean anti-Semitism? Does any critique of Israel mean that you're anti-Semitic? And you know, of course there's a rise of, there was a rise and there is still a rise of violence against uh, Jewish communities, especially after the election of Donald Trump. Uh, and we saw kind of the unfortunate events, uh, you know, and attacks of white supremacists against um, other minority groups. So I was wondering, how do you situate yourself in that debate of kind of being critical of Israel and, you know, kind of your perception of how can you critique Israel without you kind of promoting aggression against the Jewish community? Yeah, well, I feel very strongly that criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. Criticism of any country is not any government is not a criticism of its people. And Israel is not 
does not represent me. Um, this United States doesn't always represent me particularly the way I wanna be represented and certainly a country that's thousands of miles away where I don't even vote or live doesn't represent me. So criticizing Israel is to a certain extent, I'm not responsible for what Israel does wrong. Jews should not be blamed for things that Israel does. And it's kind of two sides. If Jews can't be blamed for the things that Israel does, then criticizing Israel is not a criticism of Jews. Um, I know that many people, many people think that criticizing Israel puts Jews at risk, um, that it makes Jewish people look bad. There's, there certainly is already so much anti-Semitism, but that's why I think it's really important to distinguish, as you said, between the state and the people who live there, and also between the state and people who don't even live there. there it's really important to make that distinction. Mm -hmm. And then what type of activism do you now practice? How are you trying to contribute to kind of uh, at least helping a little bit? I know when we say, oh, we'll resolve the issue, but you're like, I don't know. It has been going on for decades, right? What am I supposed to do when it comes to these issues? But kind of what small actions are you taking to help maybe eventually reach the one democratic state? Well, I really believe that if people in this country really knew what was happening on the ground in Israel, Palestine, I think that uh, we would not have the political will to continue supporting what's happening there. Our media does not cover the news that happens there. Palestinians are killed regularly and it doesn't hit the news in this country. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and I I'm, agree with you. I think it's, uh, you know, a lot has been written about media coverage of what's going on and how it, it's usually one-sided. Palestinian voices are not being included. You know, there's this portrayal of all of them as terrorists. Whenever a Palestinian is being interviewed, they ask them, oh, so do you support Hamas? Like, right. <laughs> so I do see that point and I think, yeah, yeah right. U.S. media does not portray the full picture and it is one-sided. Yeah, so one thing that I do is I speak out every opportunity that I can because I really believe that if people really understood that things would change. So that's that's one small thing that I, that I try to do. Um, I work with combatants for peace, helping to prepare, helping to work with activists to be able to tell their stories, Israelis and Palestinians who are telling their own personal, very moving stories, very powerful stories, it's not easy. And so sometimes I work with them. On the trip when we um, to um, Israel-Palestine with Combatants for Peace, one thing that we did is we, on the last day, we helped build um, a playground next to a small Palestinian school. It was very moving, although we were uh, stopped by the Israeli military and held, um, they asked to see everyone's, they actually wanted to confiscate everyone's passports, but our leader, our tour guide didn't let them do that. And so we just sat on the bus for a couple of hours while they, I don't know, because I think it was just a kind of harassment of us. But I try to speak out uh, recently. Um, I've attended some demonstrations and try to let people know mm -hmm. that 
I think it also as a Jewish person speaking out and trying to help make the point that criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. Yeah, and I think it is powerful when someone who's Jewish comes and says, well, I am Jewish. These actions don't represent who I am, right? Uh, and I don't think any critique of the state of Israel is necessarily a critique of who I am, my religious identity, right? Absolutely not. And I think that is powerful. And I, I, I found it fascinating when you said that you do help train activists kind of tell their story. Stories are important. And I feel like humans are, tend to get information through stories, personal stories, you know, not through, let's say, big data. I know you're a professor, you probably deal with data. I don't know if you're doing quantitative or qualitative analysis, but we're doing data, right? Regardless of what type of data it is. Uh, but for people, personal stories for, you know, day-to-day -day people, personal stories are a very important and powerful tool to kind of change their perception, enlighten them, maybe help them see a new angle that they didn't see or think about. So I think that's, a, that's actually a, a great way to help is spread, kind of help people tell their story, you telling your story um, and trying to spread it as wide as possible. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think another thing about hearing personal stories, especially from the other side is to humanize you know, it's just easy to think in, in abstract terms, but when you see people with tears and, and hopes and dreams and families, um, it's, it's different. Mm -hmm. It is hard to demonize them and, yeah. uh, and yeah. portray them as terrorists and hateful Jews and threatening, right, uh, in general. Right. So we started, you know, you started kind of talking about how you know, you kind of face some challenges, right? So when you were, you know, you talked about the story of the security guys trying to take confiscate your guys's passports because you were trying to uh, build a playground, right? Or that's, yes. So I was wondering if you could reflect on the challenges that are facing you. Maybe we can start out with, you know, things that are happening at home with family members, and then maybe we can move on to things outside of the family uh, because of your, you know, your perspective, because of the work that you do, and then because of kind of your activism in general, your peace activism and your perspective on the solution or the systematic violence on the ground. Well, with uh, my family and friends, I've had some uncomfortable moments, you know, in general, my family and friends deeply support human rights and they stand against discrimination. Um, but for some of them, um, Israel seems to have a kind of an exemption or there, some of them maybe are like me. They don't, like I used to be, they just want to look away. They don't really want to have to think about it. Um, and I think some of my friends are really tired of hearing me talk about this issue, but I think, well, me being uncomfortable and sharing information is, it's, it's a little bit of discomfort, but it's nothing compared to the, what people on the ground are living through. And I just feel compelled to, to continue to speak out. As far as challenges on a bigger scale, yeah, I have some colleagues who are um, very angry. Angry because of the work you do? Yes. Because of, well, because of speaking out. 
And what's the reasoning? Oh, well, one thing that has been said is that it's not appropriate for, for the educational context, but of course, education is always political. Striving for social justice is a, a value of most educators. And again, this particular topic seems to fall into a separate category. Um, I think if people speak about Black Lives Matter or um, speaking against anti-Asian violence, also things that are terribly concerning and something that my colleagues and I are all deeply engaged with, that's seen as definitely relevant to our, our educational enterprise. But talking about Israel-Palestine touches a nerve. And as I said, I, I can't fully understand it. I think it of, of why people object and they don't see the same, the same issue of social justice there. I, I guess I think it goes to um, generational trauma among Jews and fear of persecution, which is, which is very understandable. But as you said earlier, um, oppressing another people is never the solution, never a way to, to reach peace, never a way to get to safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, as somebody, I myself write about Israel, Palestine, I do teach the Middle East to my students because I, you know, I'm a political scientist and it's kind of <laughs> what I do. I find it very difficult to think of academia as separate from activism because in my thinking, What's the point of us, you know, collecting data, writing academic articles and educating our students if it's not to talk to them about very important issues related to creating an inclusive, democratic, peaceful society and not only for people in the US but everywhere, right? Especially when it comes to Israel-Palestine when the US is, uh, you know, one of the biggest supporters of Israel military, you know, they, just, they provide military aid, they uh, buy weapons, sell weapons, and they've always been there for Israel. Um, and as a taxpayer, my students should know where the money is going and what is it supporting, right? Absolutely. And, and that's my perspective. So I just find it very mind boggling when somebody argues, oh, this is not in the classroom. Actually, it is in the classroom. This is what we do. What's the point of what we do if we can't talk about these issues? Right. And then I think, well, probably some of my colleagues are still thinking many of the things that I thought for a very long time, a lot of the mythology that we learned. I, I learned that Israel was a land without a people. And I was devastated to find out that there were a lot of people living there. I was devastated to find out it's, it's not in fact the most moral army in the world. The Jews did not make the desert bloom. Another myth that I think is very hard to let go of, especially for people who do feel unsafe, Jewish people who feel because of the history of anti-Semitism. Um, another myth is that Israel provides safety for Jews. And I, I don't think that it does. I, we see anti-Semitism continuing to grow. It's with or without Israel. Um, and even Israel is not a safe place for Jews. All young people have to do military service and the country is filled with bomb shelters. It's, it's not a safe place a country that um, won't admit 
Jews who've spoken in support of the boycott, uh, the BDS movement. That's that's not a safe place. So it's it's a struggle. It's a it's a challenge to speak against beliefs that some people hold that that they've held for a very long time and and feel very deeply about. Mm-hmm. But again, I I feel that if people knew more their understandings would change if they, they, they saw more and if they also hear from individuals. And as we said earlier, hear people's stories, see people whose blood is the same, whose tears are the same. And then this brings me to my um, last question. Uh, what advice do you give for young Jewish activists? Maybe let's be focused more on activists in the U.S., who are just kind of realizing that the story that they were told is not fully true and does not fully reflect reality. Um, And they're trying to figure out how to start engaging in ways that could be helpful toward, you know, achieving a democratic state, a one democratic state, or, uh, you know, help ease their fears about you know, uh, their family or their friends rejecting them because of their new political views? Well, my advice to anyone would be to work in community, to find other people who share your views and and especially find other people who've, who've gone through a similar trajectory of the pain of letting go of beliefs that that have been held very dear. So find people, work together in community. If at all possible, join a trip, go directly to see for yourself because once you see things for yourself, you know, like any kind of traveling, when you see things with your own eyes, it's, it's a different kind of experience. Uh, something that I try to do, I don't think I'm always as successful as I would like to be, is to be sensitive to other people's feelings and fears as as they have not yet let go of some of the mythology. Another piece of advice is to listen directly to Palestinians. You know, I grew up, most of us here, Americans and Israelis talk all the time from different points of view, but we don't hear directly from Palestinians very often. And that has been extremely useful to me. Um, it's one of the reasons why I love, I like to read Twitter because the I can hear directly from different groups of people and not necessarily the people whose voices are chosen to be represented on CNN or MSNBC or in the New York Times. And lastly, I would say to stay hopeful. You know, the saying, it seems impossible until it's done. It's not impossible. The Berlin Wall fell and no one knew that it was gonna fall when it did. Change will come and uh, it, may definitely take a lot of time, but it might not. And it's, it's, I think there's a lot to be hopeful about right now. Thank you, Nancy, for the wonderful advice. I'm sure, and I'm hoping that some of our young listeners uh, will really take that in. You know, I second that importance of community and like-minded people. It's like they say, find your squad, right? Yes. <laughs> more, yes. more in mm-hmm. language. <laughs> so right. find your squad. Uh, people who think like you, like-minded people, reach out. And, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to people that you never talk to. <laughs> Just yeah. 
because you know you're afraid you, just because you don't know them or you don't know anyone who knows them sometimes if you send me an email I might respond I probably will <laughs> I'm very good I certainly will I'm very good with my email <laughs> um so yeah, uh, Nancy, I want to thank you again for um, coming here and sharing your story with us. I really appreciated it and your insight. And thank you for your activism. Hopefully, you know, we'll see each other soon sometime at some point. But um, yeah, thank you. Have a great rest of you. Oh, actually, it's the weekend. Have a great weekend. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for your work.